Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The oldest treaty still recognized by the U.S. government was signed by George Washington in December, almost 230 years ago. It grew out of the Oneida tribe's commitment to the American cause during the Revolutionary War. A number of Eastern tribes and individual tribal members played important roles in the young country's fight for independence. We'll look at this important part of American history from the tribe's point of view right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The Native group, not in our honor, in the greater Kansas City area is continuing to call on the NFL and the Kansas City football team to end the use of Native American stereotypes and imagery in sports as members of the group respond to the use of a headdress and face paint by a young fan at a recent Kansas City football game. An image of the young fan at the game wearing a headdress and his face painted half black and half red has gone viral and has sparked much debate, both in opposition and support. The fan's parents have responded, coming to their son's defense, which includes telling news outlets that he's Native American. Gaylene Krauser, executive director of the Kansas City Indian Center and member of Not In Our Honor, says the parents' response that they are Native American misses the point. If they stopped and thought about it for a minute and, and used a little empathy, they would be able to recognize that they wouldn't like it if somebody took their sacred symbols and their culture and made a mockery of it, turned it into a costume. I'm sure they would not appreciate that. Where people give them a pass on that, to me, it makes it worse because they really should have known better. Krauser says it's the Kansas City team that is at fault. I always put those kinds of things really squarely on the team. And I think that the, the initial article that's getting the backlash really nailed it on the head when they said if they had changed their name prior to this incident, if the NFL had put more pressure on them to stop appropriating stereotypes instead of what they what they did here, which was make those minor changes and, and ban that sort of thing here, then we wouldn't even be talking about that. Krauser says when it comes to Kansas City, the city should focus on what is good about their town. The football team is on the world stage. And with the World Cup coming here in a few years, all of this is going to be even more on that world stage. And it's upsetting to me that as great as so many of the people in Kansas City are, and we have so many wonderful institutions here of art and culture, that this is what gets the media attention, that this is what is in the forefront and shows representation of Kansas City. Not only do Native Americans deserve better than this, Kansas City deserves better than this. Not in our honor plans to demonstrate at the next home game on December 10th. A U.S. House committee held a hearing last week on cultural and historic preservation. As the Mountain West News Bureau's Milwaukee reports, it comes as major federal funding for these programs has expired. Many who testified say accurately telling the story of the U.S. is more important than ever, especially for marginalized communities like tribes. Pressures from climate change and development are threatening cultural resources like buildings and burial sites. And funding often doesn't meet the needs of communities who want to preserve their history. 
Here's Reno Keone Franklin, chairman of the Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians in California. Tribal historic preservation officers um, receive uh, funding that is nowhere near the amount that we need in order to adequately do our job to the best of the abilities and protect not just our own historic resources, but the historic resources of the country. Federal grant money for state, local, and tribal preservation officers expired in September. A bill introduced this year in Congress would reauthorize and increase that funding from $150 to $250 million. Proponents say the money is needed to keep up with inflation and increase staffing around this issue. For National Native News, I'm Will Walkie. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Blood Sisters by Vanessa Lilly, about a Cherokee archaeologist summoned to rural Oklahoma to investigate the disappearance of two women, one of them her sister. This and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, sitting in for Sean Spruce. Eastern tribes faced a difficult strategic decision as the Revolutionary War began. The United Nation was one of the tribes that allied with the Continental Army, and many relocated during and soon after the war. The United were among the tribes that signed a treaty with the newly formed American government almost 230 years ago that offered compensation and protection for their war in for their role in the conflict. But the American army soon burned villages and food supplies of the Seneca and other tribes for siding with the British. Tribal historians say thousands of Six Nations people froze and starved to death in the ensuing winter. Today on our show, we'll talk with Native historians about the Native side of Revolutionary War history. We also want to hear from you. Are you aware of tribes' role in the War of Independence? Join our conversation with your comment or question by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on any of our social media pages. Joining us now from o o Oneida, New York, is Chairman Dehasi Hill. He is the chairman of the Oneida Indian Nation. Welcome to Native America Calling, Chairman Hill. Yes, uh, good, uh, good afternoon, Andy. I just want to make one correction, uh, uh, Chairman from uh, Oneida, Wisconsin. Okay, all right, Oneida, Wisconsin. All right, um, well, uh, sorry about that. Uh, Chairman Hill, uh, how significant is the Revolutionary War to your tribe? 
Uh, yeah, I just, you know, I want to start out by saying, you know, it's, it's always a, a difficult topic, uh, knowing that uh, the Revolutionary War had a, a great deal with um, uh, splitting up of the Six Nations, the, the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, Haudenosaunee, people of the, of the Longhouse, uh, during that time because of the dissension between siding with the colonists and siding with the British. So it's always a, a, a touchy topic, even even today. Right, and that's how your tribe went from New York to Wisconsin, right? Correct. Right. So uh, the United Nation is um, a notable ally with the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Uh, can you tell us why they uh, allied with um, the Continental Army? Uh, yeah, I just you know like to start with that. You know, the the Confederacy tried to maintain its neutrality. Uh, for as long as possible, I guess, but with uh, with the situation between the British and the, the colonists uh, is what it was that uh, they were both vying for the support of the of the Confederacy, and um, I guess this comes down to the leadership of the different uh, nations of the Confederacy, ultimately uh, deciding who they were going to side with in that in the in the conflict, and so yeah. The vast majority of Oneidas had sided with the with the colonists uh, to defend our homeland. Okay, was there what was the pressure like for uh, for your tribe back then to join either side? Were they trying to remain neutral at all? Uh, yeah, I think neutrality was the, the the stance that most of the tribes had taken early on, but as uh, the ensuing uh, war is ramping up. Uh, as I understand it, that uh, the, both the, the British and the, the colonists were sending envoys to to the tribes, to the Confederacy, to solicit their um, their help in, in in the coming war. Okay, was there uh, any kind of uh, benefit for siding with um, the Continental Army? Uh, well, for well, for the Oneida was uh, obviously the, the treaty that was signed, you know, afterwards, and uh, recognizing that peace and friendship and a lot of promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Um, but yeah, it's it's like I said, it's a it's a touchy topic, but it's part of the history, and I think everyone should should really know what happened during that time. Right. I'd like to uh, bring in another guest. Uh, joining us from Victor, New York, is Peter Jamison. He is a uh, retired historic manager of Ganondagan State his Historic Site. And he's a member of the Seneca Nation of Indians and a member of the Her uh, Heron Clan. Welcome to Native America Calling, Peter. Thank you. And I'm going to offer a correction, too. The pronunciation is Ganondagan. Ganondagan. And what it means is there's a town situated on a hill surrounded by the substance of white, referring to white blossoms that were growing there that turned into an edible fruit. And the people lived on that when they first went there. Ganondagan. All right. Thank you so much you got for it. that. <laughs> All right. So um, <clears throat> the uh, the um, uh, was the Seneca leadership back then. Uh, what was that like during the uh, American Revolutionary War? What, how were uh, Seneca leaders, um, you know, taking in uh, this brewing war that uh, they knew what was happening? Well, 
at first, um, as Tehasi said, we we tried to take a position of neutrality, and um, our warriors were enticed with uh, a new gun, a new knife, you know, clothing, gunpowder, all of the arm, the things necessary to arm themselves, and the British became, you know, very persuasive. We had long-standing agreements with the British. And uh, therefore, we, we were more inclined, if, if we were going to be brought into it, to, to listen to, you know, their um, offers of, uh, you know, joining them. And, and, uh, and in the initial offer, it really was that we would go and observe at Oriskany, and we would not be directly involved in the fighting. We would be observers there. But as it as the uh, battle went on, we really did get involved, as did the Oneida, and that was the first time we saw ourselves on opposite sides of the battle. We were actually, you know, uh, fighting our own people, our people that we had been joined together with by a message of peace, power, and righteousness, you know, um, at the time of the journey of the peacemaker when our confederacy was formed. So here was that first split. And, you know, and, and the thing is, the objective always throughout this war and through the previous war called the French and Indian War was who was going to be able to take possession of the land that we occupied because they, they had their eye on that. You know, they had settled along the eastern coast and now they were looking inland. And so always there's this objective of how do they gain control over our land and, and who has the right to do that. And so, you know, this this is the underlying cause for me of the Revolutionary War. Right, right. And uh, who are uh, some of the uh, important Seneca fi- uh, figures we should uh, know about who were important uh, and played important roles during this time? Well, probably the most significant one would be Corn Planter, who mm-hmm. was a warrior, and he really began to get the title of, you know, sort of the head warrior of our people. Another warrior who took part in this in this fighting, there are a couple that I would mention. Uh, one of them is the one we refer to as Han- Handsome Lake, uh, and his, his name was Skanyadayo. Uh, and, you know, later on, as in, in time, he will, you know, give up the war path and, he will be given a message of uh, uh, which we call the good word or the guy wheel, which we will be, you know, having to re- recite to our people to help us pull ourselves up by the bootstraps from the the uh, impact of the war and, and all of the loss that took place and all of the displacement that we had to deal with and a loss of life. Another one, uh, Ayakatu, uh, you know, I... I am a descendant of a person called Mary Jemison, who was uh, a Scotch-Irish person adopted by the Seneca Nation and whose children eventually marry into the Seneca Nation. And that is the beginning of our Seneca line because we are matrilineal. We follow our mother's side in terms of our nation and in terms of our clan. But Hayakatu is another warrior who is very much involved throughout the Revolutionary War. And uh, it it seems that he was still fighting at a very advanced stage and traveling great distances, perhaps on foot, perhaps part of it on, 
canoe or part of it on uh, horseback, but um, age did not seem to slow him down any. He, he, he lived to be over 100 uh, and was, you know, a fierce warrior. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, so we're we're going to go to a break in just a little bit, but I wanted to go back to uh, Chairman Hill. Uh, Chairman, who are some uh, notable Oneida uh, folks we should know about who were important uh, and played important roles during this time? Yeah, I think uh, Chief Scanadoa should be definitely mentioned. <clears throat> he was an unwavering friend to the Americans. Uh, he believed, believed in the cause of the colonists and uh, warned his uh, warned the, the white neighbors of the British invaders. Uh, uh, he and his uh, warriors fought on the side of the Americans uh, along the uh, wars along the Mohawk River and the surrounding territory. Um, he was also he uh, and his uh, Oneida who saved uh, Washington's starving, uh, starving army at Valley Forge as well, delivering several hundred bushels of corn to uh, the starving army. All right. Thank you so much for that. So we are talking about uh, tribes' involvement in the Revolutionary War. This is back in the 1700s, um, 1775-ish to 1783. Uh, We'll be back after this break. You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. How did your tribe uh, get involved with this war? The time of year for gathering around the table is also the time to be wary of food-borne illnesses. Preventing food poisoning and other problems linked to food is usually a matter of paying attention to a few basic handling rules. We'll dig into the basics of food safety on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, sitting in for Sean Spruce, and we're discussing Native people's involvement in America's war for independence. Join our conversation with a comment or question. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to bring in a, another guest we have with us. Joining us uh, right now is uh, Curtis Zunega. Uh, he is the co-director of the Lenape Center. He's an enrolled member of the Delaware Tribe of Indians. Welcome to Native America Calling, Curtis. Hey, Kunamosi Hutch. Thank you very much. I'm greeting you from the lower Hudson Valley of New York, which is inside our original homeland of Lenape. 
All right. So the um, Continental Army back then was said uh, to have needed alliances uh, with uh, a couple of different tribes, including Lenape, because of their knowledge of the land. Um, who did the Lenape ally with and why? Uh, let me make an important <clears throat> uh, distinction now. Uh, Lenape is our name in our traditional language. We are Lenape, always have been and always will. It wasn't until the English took control of the so-called Hudson River Valley and the Delaware River Valley that our colonizer name was applied to us. So a lot of history is written about us with our colonizer name, which are the Delaware Indians. That's why today I'm an enrolled member of the Delaware tribe. We still carry that colonizer name. So when you look through history books, you'll read about the Delaware. So, but yes, indeed, the Lenape had a very significant role uh, during the so-called Revolutionary War, the War for Independence from Britain. And um, uh, at the time, we have been pretty much moved out of the lower Hudson Valley and the area around Philadelphia and had been pushed uh, into Eastern Ohio in the Tuscarawas River Valley. We had three prominent tribal leaders, chiefs of different subclans. So those significant names were White Eyes, Pipe, and Killbuck. And much like your other uh, uh, guests on the program, uh, these leaders were all about trying to establish neutrality. We, we, had a, we had a remembrance of aligning with the British or the French in previous wars. And when the people that we allied with lost, we lost a lot too. So the idea of, of uh, pursuing uh, neutrality was extremely important and pushed uh, by the more seasoned and elder leaders, the conflict was the young hot warriors who, who wanted to go to battle with anybody that was going to deprive them of their lands. And uh, uh, the call was for many of these tribes, our brethren like the Shawnees and the Wyandots and others who were aligned with the English with the belief that we were going to have uh, uh, land returned to us uh, and have greater opportunity there. Uh, while our leaders pushed for neutrality, they kept um, uh, calling upon the Continental Congress to give them money for the promises that were made, the promises of neutrality and support, that they would be given money to buy clothes and, and uh, uh, musket shot and bullets and rifles and the opportunity just to hunt and fish uh, and not be disturbed so that they could take care of their people. You got to understand our Lenape people were being forced out of their original homeland in an atmosphere of warfare. And it's quite frankly, not unlike what's going on with the people in Ukraine when the Russians came, come pulling into their lands and burning them out of their territories and running them off. That's the exact same thing our people went through uh, during this time period. 
Okay. And you mentioned uh, White Eyes. Is that uh, uh, Chief White Eyes? And, and what kind of uh, p um, pivotal decisions did he make for the tribe at this time? Uh, well, again, White Eyes, along with two other prominent leaders, Captain Pike, Opokan, and Kilbuck. Uh, the most significant thing is that they did was on September 17, 1778, at Fort Pitt, which later became Pittsburgh, of course, but at Fort Pitt, as the Delaware were pushing for neutrality, they finally agreed that with, with financial support that they would ally with the United States, the brand new United States, and that they agreed in an agreement with the United States of America on September 17, 1778, the Treaty of Fort Pitt, there would be an offensive and a defensive alliance with the United States and the Delawares, and uh, that they would, the Delawares would provide a passage through the Delaware lands that had been promised to them, and if the American army was going to march through there on their way to Fort Detroit, that they would not march through there uh, molesting is the word, the Delawares, but, but with their consent and support. And what White Eyes significantly did when he was, was pressing for this agreement, this treaty, was something that was very important in what became the first Indian treaty with the United States of America, this treaty at Fort Pitt. Because White Eyes pushed for the idea that they needed to be firmly entrenched with this new United States. And they put an article in the treaty that says, and it is further agreed by the contracting parties, should it, be, uh, should it for the future be found conducive for the mutual interest of the parties involved, that the United States will present a confederation and form a state of which the Delaware nation shall be the head and have a representation in Congress. That was part of the agreement with the very first Indian treaty, that there would actually be a 14th state in the United States of America, and the Delaware nation would be placed at the head of that state. Obviously, it did not come to fruition, but it was very important to uh, make sure that we weren't just going to get bought off, and then when the war was over, we were forgotten. Unfortunately, that's the way it ultimately turned out. Mm. You, you say bought off because there was a monetary exchange, right? Yes, indeed. Um, well, one of the first things that happened was the payment of $10,000 to the Delaware so that they could have enough money to start buying supplies to support the, the tribal members that, that were part of this movement uh, uh, into Ohio and across Ohio, and then also that by working with the Americans, there were the missionaries that were involved. The Moravian Church was heavily involved with the Lenape, especially in East Central Ohio along the Tuscarawas River. So they were not gonna be pushing for an alliance with the English or to break free from the Americans and go over to the English because they didn't wanna to have to compete for the souls of the, of the Delawares uh, at their many missions across Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. Right.
And how how closely um how how closely were uh like Chief White Eyes and other uh leaders of the tribe how closely were they working with um uh you know important figures like um George Washington at the time I mean who did they really get their uh orders from Uh well they worked with uh, what was uh, an Indian agency for the middle uh, middle America, so to speak? Uh, that was a function of the uh, of the uh, of the young federal government at the time. So there were uh, guys by the name of uh, Macintosh, Morgan. Um, uh, uh, these war leaders uh, were charged with getting the Indians in line with the Americans and to uh, settle these agreements. The, the Lenape, the Delawares, remember George Washington because he used to fight with the, with the British, and, and especially during the French and Indian War. So they're not forgetting George Washington. George Washington, however, coveted, now that he was with the Americans, he covered, coveted that relationship with the Delawares because they had that keen uh, uh, territorial military strategic knowledge of the lands and, again, could provide additional resources to, uh, for the fledgling uh, Continental Army, and that being horses, warriors, uh, food, um, in addition to this uh, uh, military uh, intelligence uh, to help them. Uh, that, that goes all the way back to uh, Washington crossing the Delaware River. You know, they needed that information from the Delawares at the time uh, for him to have launched that Christmas Eve or Christmas Day uh, attack. So, um, uh, but no, they did not deal with directly with Washington other than his approval of the original agreement um, that was done in on September 1778. Unfortunately, uh, he did not want to deal with directly with them too much because he didn't want to interfere with what was going on with the Continental Congress. He was over on the Army side, and he didn't want to uh, upset or change anything that may have been uh, established with the Continental Congress. Okay. All right, I want to go back to our uh, guest we have with us, uh, Chairman Dehasi Hill uh, from Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. Um, uh, were there, or uh, let me see, what were some of the uh, significant battles fought by the Oneida Nation during this war? Yeah, there's, like I said, uh, you know, the kind of the, the battlefront along the the Mohawk River and surrounding territories was probably the primary primary area, um, and so that's uh, generally that 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 area. And so the kind of the also mentioned the the Fort Standwix area as well as um, where we signed uh, several treaties as well with the with the with the, the United States government as well. So kind of up and down in that area. Okay. All right. And, um, you know, looking back, what do you think of the decision um, those early leaders had to make to fight alongside the Americans? 
Yeah, that, I, you know, like I said, it's a it's a touchy subject, and mm-hmm. you know, I definitely would not want to have made that decision uh, to break our neutrality. Um, but you know, it's uh, it's a it's a part of the history, and uh, that we that we all live with today, uh, no matter which side we uh, decided to fight with, and so really that's uh, uh, a tough one for me, I guess personally, just to 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 talk about it and to figure out you know how we continue to work and move our communities forward and trying to rebuild those continue to rebuild those relationships you know hundreds of years later um you know that it, it's still a a, a topic of, of discussion yeah and when we talk about allyship, um, I, I think uh, maybe folks don't really understand like that. That uh, means, um, you know, a whole bunch of other things, a whole bunch of things that uh, uh, are, you know, promised to one another. And one of those is just uh, people. Uh, uh, warriors and and soldiers to send to war. I mean, how, what what uh, number of people are we talking about? How many people, uh, Oneida people, um, were you know dedicated to this war and maybe even lost their lives uh, during this war? Uh, I can't remember the exact number. Um, I want to say it was somewhere. That- that we have record of about 90 kind of like commissioned officers in the army, but that's not per se for, you know, warriors that weren't necessarily commissioned, but uh, as far as actually is a part of the army, uh, about I think it was about 90. Okay. All right. And I want to go back to um, uh, Peter Jemison. He's a retired historic site manager at Gananga. Ganondagan State Historic Site. Um, uh, Peter, uh, can can you also answer that question? Like, how how many people uh, were dedicated to fighting uh, on the ground in the battlefield? I really don't have numbers to to uh, give you, um, but you know, Seneca Warriors. Um, we were a large group and a very formidable group and so formidable was the confederacy itself that you know we were invited to important discussions and i want to give you just one instance okay in 1744 we met with the representatives of those 13 original colonies and there was an onondaga leader a young man uh, who suggested to those people gathered there that they should form a a union and that they should unite for their mutual defense. And this is in the year 1744 when this is suggested to them. Subsequent to that, in 1756, the Oneida broker a meeting that takes place in Albany when the members of that group of these 13 uh, original colonies inform us that they have decided to follow our our suggestion and they're going to form a union. And they're not only going to form a union, but they're going to take on the British and they're going to remove them from the country. They're going to drive them out. And so, you know, we hear this and it's called the Albany Plan of Union. 
So I'm just going back to kind of fill in some of the, you know, the earlier things that take place. But, you know, what we, the Seneca and the Cayuga, are subject to are attacks by the Sullivan-Clinton campaign of 1779. And, you know, this follows on our attack uh, in Cherry Valley and also our attack in the Wyoming Valley. And really what we're trying to do is defend our homeland. We're trying to stop the settlers who are coming in to our territories and assuming that, you know, they can do this because there's really no authority to prevent them from doing that other than our own people. And so we're put in that situation. And um, eventually George Washington directs his army against us in the belief that we are feeding the British. And therefore, the army, the British army, is able to sustain itself by the food that we're supplying them. So Sullivan Clinton comes after our corn, our beans, and our squash, and winds up destroying one million over uh, over 400,000 bushels of corn in an attempt to remove us and to, you know, destroy us really. All right, we'll be back after this break. We're talking about tribes' involvement in the Revolutionary War. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Skooktosh, support by Ramona Farms. For over 40 years, Ramona's American Indian Foods has revived tepary beans, panoli, traditional wheat flours, and more. Delivery for your holiday gatherings, available on orders placed at store.ramonafarms.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Mandy Murphy. There's still time to join our conversation about the history of Native people's involvement in the American Revolutionary War. If your tribe was directly affected by this war, give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to go back to uh, Chairman Hill from Oneida uh, Nation. Um, Chairman Hill, we just heard from uh, Peter about uh, food being burned and corn being burned. And, uh, you know, that was a war tactic. How was um, how was food part of um, everything that happened uh, with your tribe during this time? I, I, I do hear a lot about uh, uh, white corn being affected by, um, you know, some of these earlier conflicts back in the Revolutionary War times. Yeah, food was very important, not only to, you know, our tribal nations, but obviously to the, the warring parties as well, you know, with the uh, supply lines being not the greatest and, you know, the Continental Congress not necessarily having its act together, being so new, being able to provide for its uh, armies that uh, that uh, food was a very, very valuable asset during, during this time. And, you know, it's that's... Uh, what was, I guess, done at that time, you know, really is, is you know, by today's standards would be, you know, uh, uh, war crimes. But going, you know, but that's uh, where we're at today. 
Right. And and uh, today, how, how are things uh, looking for that uh, traditional corn? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, today, uh, I think it's in good hands today. Um, we have a lot of community members that uh, grow our traditional white corn and a lot of the traditional beans and squashes in our community. And it's really um, come a long way from, say, 30 years ago of just a handful of people um, growing and uh, growing white corn in our community to having uh, dozens and dozens of people now. Awesome. All right. Um, thank you so much for that. Uh, you know, food is just something that is a big interest for me uh, in, in pretty much all the work I do here at uh, Native America Calling. There's always a, a food part of um, mostly every discussion we have here and I, I, I love getting into that so um, you know thanks for sharing that. Uh, so I want to go over to another guest we have in uh, Grisham, Wisconsin uh, we have Joanne Shedler she is a retired Army major and a Mohican veteran she's a member of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohican Indians welcome to Native America Calling Joanne not uh, being there, very honored to be there with the other leaders of other tribes. Great. Uh, so uh, tell me, we, we kind of went over uh, this earlier, but um, how did the Revolutionary War affect your tribe specifically? All right. Well, during this time, we had already, we were a large tribe up and down the Hudson or the Mahikinu River. And um, we ended up by 1735 to 1785 being located in western Massachusetts, which became, we accepted an Indian mission, and eventually that town where we were at became called the town of Stockbridge, named by the English people who were the missionaries. So I know a lot of people, and I didn't even understand that, where that name came from. But the Muncie were Stockbridge, were Mohican Nation people, Mohicans. Um, so Stockbridge is that, named after that town and that group there. And the Muncie people joined in with us, um, both in the missions that we were at in New York, Stockbridge, and then here in Wisconsin. So that's the name of our, our people. Uh, as we were out during that time in Massachusetts, we were right in the middle of what was happening during that Revolutionary War. So uh, being the English mission, American colonized people there um, were on the side of the Americans, and we ended up fighting uh, to support them and our land that we were living at at that time. Okay. All right, and you're mentioning Massachusetts, you're mentioning Wisconsin. Uh, how did the tribe go from uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, to Wisconsin? Well, as we fought within, we initially were working, were fighting with the British, um, and during that time, then, like I said, uh, English, um, during the Revolutionary War, our ancestors joined um, and fought with hundreds of people as uh, soldiers. And uh, after the war, we ended up coming back to the area of Stockbridge. And 
more settlers had come in, and we lost those lands and uh, ended up being pushed throughout along with joining in other tribes um, out west, the Oneida brethren uh, offered us a place to stay. We ended up in New York along with our Oneida partners and then ended up being pushed by landowners in New York area. Again, our people ended up going further west through many different moves and eventually by 1820s in Wisconsin. Got it. Uh, and you had direct ancestors in, um, you know, fighting in this war. H- how important was uh, Stockbridge Muncie's involvement in the war? Well, um, the we since our involvement, we ended up being teaching the British uh, as being a part of the Rogers Rangers in the 1750s. So they talked about us being a part of the starting of the Green Beret Rogers Rangers groups. We ended up, um, as we were fighting in the war, my ancestor, uh, Chief Kunkapot, was given a commission as a captain in the 1730s when we decided to become in the mission. Um, And then our ancestors fought, uh, like I said, in the Revolutionary War in several different regiments, and um, there were three patriots that are here in Wisconsin that uh, had fought in the Revolutionary War that are buried here. Uh, One of them is my ancestor, Lieutenant Jacob Kunkapot. Um, The other one is Captain Hendrick Appamot, and he has a long history of uh, Appamot of being born in Stockbridge, uh, educated there in the mission, uh, and he did fight in the uh, Revolutionary War. He fought along with Captain um, Ninham during battles in the Bronx. And when they were massacred there, Hendrick Appamont was promoted up to captain and ended up uh, continuing on throughout those wars and eventually ended up here in Wisconsin as buried here. Another one was a Delaware leader who was in Princeton as student in New Jersey, and his name is Bartholomew Calvin. He ended up joining uh, various different as an interpreter um, groups in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and ended up also they were pushed out and they joined in with a Stockbridge mission group, our tribal people in New York, and ended up coming to Wisconsin. Okay. So uh, obviously you're very um, knowledgeable about this history, and um, you have uh, ancestors who are, uh, you know, played important roles in all of this, and I'm sure many people in your tribe have ties like that, but um, uh, maybe aren't so knowledgeable about this history. Why would, uh, why would um, uh, you know, um, folks from your tribe, uh, why is it important for them to learn this history, especially um, young people? Well, we have all fought. The Native Americans have the highest rate of fighting or being a part of military service in every single war. And so understanding 
what are we fighting for? <laughs> We're fighting for our land, for Lyland, for our country, for our survival. And as Hendrik Appelmott was a uh, a soldier, he also was a diplomat. He tried to, or he was asked by George Washington to be the first Native American dip, diplomat and try to go off um, into Ohio and those are the western parts of the nation at that time, and to try to have peace and work with the Native people. Um, so I guess we need to understand our own history and what happened to us. And I, I guess today it's just a credit that we're still here because we were such a devastated small group of people in a mission and really stayed together and try to educate ourselves and understand where are we coming from. And that's why I think we're still here today. Got it. I want to go back to our guest, uh, Curtis Zuniga, uh, co-director of the Lenape Center. Uh, Curtis, um, why why is it important that Lenape people know this history? And um, why why should other people know this history as well? Well, I think it's important to know that the Lenape, who many people today are wondering, who are the Lenape, where are they, that because of colonization, our identity had to be changed. The name places for where we originated in Lenape Hoking were changed to the colonizer name. But we had, uh, we had a foundation in the formation of the United States of America, even though we were lied to and misrepresented in coming to these agreements. We need our own people to know and understand that we were always referred to as, in our language, the grandfathers, the oldest of the Algonquin-speaking people and that we were regarded to, to a certain point in the, the early American history to have engaged in a treaty, the Treaty of Fort Pitt, September 1778. That is significant because now in today's world of federal recognition and federally recognized Indian tribes oftentimes have to present their treaty history to the United States in order to get that federal recognition. It's a very complex matter. Uh, and because the colonizers broke us up as a people and we had to flee in different directions based on different wars over a period of time, we had people going into Canada, we had people going into Oklahoma. And that was all because of agreements that were made to give up our lands and move to where we are today. These agreements were based on treaties. Today, treaties are the foundation for federal recognition. So we go back to being the first federally recognized Indian tribe in the history of the United States. That is a very significant uh, identity, uh, uh, a piece of uh, history that I, that, that, makes our identity without question um, in the history of the United States. And that's why we are still important today. And I think our people know, should know that. All right. 
Peter, I want to ask you uh, the same question. Why is it important that uh, Seneca people know about this history? And is there maybe anything else you want to share or, or correct um, about your people's involvement in this war? Well, I think it's very important because we are about to reach the 250th anniversary of this whole event. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we allow the non-Native historian to tell the story, it's, a going, it's again going to push us to one side and tell the story in a way that kind of sanitizes some of the things that they did, the destruction, the, the cause of death that they created by the destruction of our food. And by removing us from, you know, our homeland. And um, it's time that some of the monuments that were put up way back in 1929, that they're corrected so that this doesn't sound like a glorious campaign, the Sullivan Clinton campaign. I mean, what they really succeeded in doing was destroying our food and destroying our houses, but they didn't annihilate us. We, you know, we survived only because of our own, I guess you could say, we, you know, our fortitude. We really were determined to survive. So I think at this point, when, the, when we're going to be revisiting this story, and we know that there are so many historians out there who are really focused on narrow issues, like how did this particular battle go? What kind of armaments were on each side? Where did each you know, bullet go? I mean, that kind of thing. There needs to be a telling of what the ultimate goal was to displace us from our land. Um, I think one other thing that is important is that we signed a treaty in 1794, which George Washington uh, signed. It's called the Canandaigua Treaty. That brought about peace and friendship between the United States and the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations. That treaty acknowledge the lands that we were occupying and acknowledge that Seneca Nation was really our lands extended all of western New York from the Genesee River all the way west to Pennsylvania uh, to Presque Isle and that's that was the agreement that we entered into Timothy Pickering negotiated that treaty he was very honorable mm -hmm. and he wanted to be sure that the words that were used during the negotiations of the treaty, actually uh, were, the, were the, the substance that would wind up in the treaty itself, in the written document. All right. Thank you so much for that. And I want to thank our other guests we had on the show today, Chairman Dehasi Hill of Oneida Nation. Uh, that was just Peter Jameson, Curtis Zuniga, and Joanne Shedler. We'll be back tomorrow with a conversation about food safety. More tribes are using drones to safely and economically collect infrastructure and climate data, help guide disaster response, habitat surveys, and more. Plus, they'll train your people to become FAA-certified drone operators. Save money and lives with drone services from Cayuse Native Solutions, an enterprise of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Cayuse Native Solutions understands your unique needs and situations. Go to CayuseNativeSolutions.com or call 541-429-6983.
anika yali, anika lopti, alle with the tetla unilu cheti. Tehla no hetiska, tehi no sehesti, na go well a yella nu dan hadega gutlai, unina esti. Yitaduli to delo ho histina, healthcare.gov slash coverage with tetla no heta, alle. 1-800-318-2596 He are get to know some Medicare or Medicaid in the Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.